Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode, I have the great privilege to sit down with Dr. Sachin Panda. This episode was eye-opening for me. We talk all about the impact of light, both artificial and natural light on human biology and human physiology. We talk about what circadian biology is and what it's not. We talk about how circadian biology influences a woman's ability to get pregnant. This was just a fascinating conversation. In addition, we talk about food and meal timing. Does it actually really matter? Does it matter when we exercise? We cover a lot of ground in this episode. I think that you're really going to like it. Dr. Sachin Panda is an incredible scientist. He is a professor at the Salk Institute in California, where his research focuses on the circadian regulation of behavior, physiology, and metabolism in model organisms, and most importantly, from our perspective, in humans. So how is his work being translated to human performance and human health? Dr. Panda discovered, yes, discovered a blue light sensing cell type in the retina that entrains our master clock, it affects mood, and regulates the production of the sleep hormone melatonin. He is a world-renowned scientist. I'm so grateful that he spent time with us. I think you're going to love this episode. And as always, if you like it, please share it, rate it. We look at all your feedback and leave us a review. Thank you again so much. And let's dive in. Special thank you to one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Element. During the podcast and right before, people are always asking me, what are you drinking? Well, you know, we don't really give away a water at this house, but we do give away water with Element in it. And Element is an electrolyte drink with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. It doesn't have any fillers. It doesn't have any sugar or color. It is formulated to help you with your electrolyte needs, whether you are eating a low-carb diet, keto, paleo diet, doesn't even matter. Uh, We love it here. Really helps with energy. Eliminates any headaches that I get from dehydration or muscle cramps and fatigue, which these are all things that can happen if you are low in electrolytes. And right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packs with any Element order. Get yours now. Head on over to drinkelement, drinklmnt.com slash Dr. Lion, and you will get to try all eight flavors. And if you don't like it, you will get a no questions asked refund. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, I talk all about taking care of your body and with taking care of your body, you cannot forget to take care of your mind. This is probably the most important muscle that you will ever, ever, ever work. And oftentimes we have good thoughts and oftentimes we have not so good thoughts. And that's just how our brains work. But the thing is, is if you go to the gym every day and you're eating healthy, you cannot sit by and not address your brain and what you are thinking. Better help is amazing. It is online therapy 
that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you will be matched with a therapist in 48 hours, so you will not spend a long time in need. And I, I think that that's really important. Again, we exercise our bodies and we eat well, but you know, the most important organ, I think, aside from muscle, really is our brain, and we have to take better care of that. My listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Dr. Lion. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Dr. Lion. And I'll say this, you have nothing to lose from booking an appointment, but you have everything to gain. Dr. Sachin Panda, thank you so much for making the trip. I am thrilled to be talking to you. We're going to talk all about circadian biology, circadian rhythm, all the things that you are a leader in the field. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about this prior to you coming on, and there was a time where people were exposed to secondhand smoke. And nobody thought anything about it. Yeah. And now there's warning labels. And, and in fact, we're not even around secondhand smoke anymore. And then I started thinking, what about the electrification of the world with this light, light pollution? And now it seems as if potentially with your work, maybe we're doing the same thing that we did with secondhand smoke and its implications on health and wellness. Well, uh, there is a small difference. Smoke in any form was really harmful. Whereas light, we need light for safety. We need light to work in the evening. What is important is now when we know which spectrum of light or which color of light is good for us in the daytime and what color is bad for us at night, then we can figure out how to redesign this anthropogenic or man-made world. So in this context, uh, almost 20, 23 years ago, three different groups, including mine, we co-discovered a new light sensor called melanopsin. And uh, this light sensor senses blue spectrum of light, that's cyan blue, 480 nanometer, for those of you who are interested. <laughs> and this cyan blue light sensor senses light and sends that information to the brain saying, hey, this is daytime, be alert. Reset your circadian clock to the local time zone so that you can be active. And daylight or sunlight is the biggest source of that blue light. So that's why we need that blue light or daylight during daytime. And then at nighttime, the same light, the same blue light can actually confuse our brain because it tells that, hey, evening is not here yet. It's a just a long day. Let's suppress your nightly hormone melatonin, which is the hormone that makes us sleep so that we stay awake. And uh, so that's why the point is during daytime, we need more light, particularly blue spectrum of light. And at nighttime, we need to dim that blue spectrum and then maybe crank up the orange spectrum. It's almost like candlelight dinner. I mean, <laughs> so, so the point is, for you are right, that we designed this world with light. But now with the new LED uh, technology where we can change the spectrum of light and the intensity of light, all of this, we can think of light therapeutics where we can crank up. For example, those who are indoor most of the time, um, those who are sick, 
and cannot go out for example for them having blue light from electrical light source during daytime is really awesome whereas at night time we can also have circadian lighting so that we can tune down blue light and give the orange light and maybe dim down that that's so interesting basically what you're saying is that we can use different light spectrums yeah. to augment potentially treatment and just overall health yeah. in the same uh, you know in the same hand the light the fluorescent lights the impact of light on us all the time on our skin what kind of implications do, do you know does that have on our health and wellness and is it enough to move the needle in a negative direction do you think yeah so let's start with um, everybody uh, all of us who are living in a normal life and we go to the um, go to the light uh, to buy our light bulb and then we get excited about this led light because it's super cool white and we bring that and put it in our bedroom in our bathroom everywhere and in that case what is happening is at night time of course it gives us a lot and we stay awake late into the night and but our day for most of us starts at say around 7 or 8 even our kids have to get up and then go to school so as a result what is happening is people are getting less sleep so indirect effect of um putting lot of light in our houses particularly in the evening is we get sleep deprived so that's for all of us now let's go back to two um specific populations who are at very high risk or ill so for example all the um hospitals also have 24/7 light and that's necessary to keep the physicians alert and keep everybody who is working there alert they should not fall asleep but what is interesting is even in the icus and also in uh, patient's room the lights are on 24/7 and when the lights the, the lights are on because the nurses and physicians have to come and take several readings and maybe even take blood samples so there are two things happening one the icu lighting being on 24/7 that light itself disrupts sleep and circadian rhythm for the patients second all the icu practice of repeatedly waking up patients taking their vitals or poking needles also reduces their overall sleep also reduces the quality of sleep an average icu patient gets 5 hours of sleep and that 5 hours is not continuous it's fragmented just imagine if you're healthy and you get 5 hours of fragmented sleep you'll be cranky I don't so know. no <laughs> sounds like my routine day yeah no, but but you know it's yeah. uh, for uh, of most of us so th- that's why it's not surprising that nearly one third of icu uh, patients experience delirium because they cannot figure out what time of day it is and where they are and they become crazy so that's one spectrum the other spectrum where it is very well documented now in experiments is nicu because neonatal icus are extremely important to have these premature babies nurtured for several sometimes several weeks before they are released when they gain weight and are almost normal then they are released in the us now nearly 380000 babies are born premature so that's one in 10 babies born in this country um are born before full term so now there is a so almost all nicus are also 24/7 lit and people think that babies don't have circadian rhythm because they don't sleep um, continuously but that's wrong because we do have uh, almost every cell in our body has circadian clock circadian rhythm 
and the babies are also sensitive to light. So there is a nice experiment done in uh, Mexico City where nearly 60 uh, premature babies were randomized to two different groups. One group got the standard of care, just like any other ICU, the lights were on 24-7. And then the other group, the lights were on for 12 hours, 250 lux of light, which is average indoor light. And then in the evening, between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., I think 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., the bottom line is for 12 hours. Um, there was a light cotton kind of thing that was covered on the uh, crib so that the light dropped down to nearly 20 lux. So 20 lux light is equivalent to having a 40 watt old, old style light bulb in your big room. And so that's pretty dim enough. What is interesting was the, the babies in the simulated light, dim light conditions, they grew much faster so that they were released from hospital NICU 13 days advance, 13 days earlier than the other group. Just imagine one day of NICU stay in this country, in the US itself, is more than $10,000. And now we have 380,000 premature babies in this country. And just the emotional burden on parents is also pretty high. So this is a case where simulating light-dark cycle can actually accelerate growth of babies, premature babies, so that they can be released from hospital much faster. Now if you fast forward and think about what happens in our homes when we have newborn babies to say four or five years old, they also need that simulated light-dark cycle. So whereas if we keep the lights on bright, and on top of that, if we keep give uh, um, tablets and phones to our kids to play with, then they're exposed to that bright light late into the night. So there is also another study showing that babies, um, now we are talking about somewhere from three to seven-year-old babies. Uh, when they're, uh, they have a set bedtime every evening, then they're at a low risk for developing weight gain and obesity than babies who are put to bed at random time in the evening. So this is a large study from the UK that essentially says that, yes, you may not see a bad effect of random bed, uh, going to bed time. The reason why they're going to bed at different time is not that they're actually sitting in a dark space. And not, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are actually being active and they are entertained for late night. So these are some of the examples where um, controlling light can have a huge impact to the extent that now, few years ago, International Space Station used to be lit 24-7, and it was very difficult for the astronauts to uh, get restorative sleep. And also, now we are in Houston. And <laughs> yeah, it's pretty pretty and, hot and bright here. Yeah, yeah no, the, the point was, um, in every 90 minutes, International Space Station sees a sunrise and sunset. <laughs> so a few years ago, they also uh, put simulated circadian lighting in International Space Station. So now we can imagine that from NICU to ISS, International Space Station, we are seeing the benefit of circadian lighting or what we are losing in modern days is the darkness <laughs> or simulated yeah. darkness even. It, that is a huge impact. It, it's actually fascinating because what I'm hearing you say that it's not the light exposure in and of itself, uh, regardless of the spectrum that is the 
dangerous aspect of this overexposed kind yeah. of world, that it's actually the disruption of the circadian cycles yes. that have the biggest impact. Could you define a circadian cycle, circadian rhythm, uh, and also the inputs, yeah. whether it's the superchiasmatic nuclei, just the, the inputs into all of that? Yeah, so circadian uh, literally means nearly 24 hours. Um, these are from two different Latin words, circa and dian. So that means these are near 24 hours timetable. So circadian rhythms are the internal timetables for every cell in every organ in our body, including our brain. So circadian rhythms constitute the master uh, program that guides um, what time of the day or night every single gene out of 20,000 genes that we have become active or inactive in every cell. And the result is these rhythms actually improve our immune system so that we can fight infectious disease much better. They accelerate um, repair so that we can recover from injury. They also optimize our brain function so that we are resilient to um, affective disorders, depression, anxiety, all the way to dementia. And also circadian rhythm supercharge our metabolism, detoxification, and DNA damage repair so that we stay healthy against metabolic disease, cancer, and many chronic diseases. So now the circadian rhythms, as I said, they're present in almost every cell, in every organ. Um, but the thing is there is some hierarchy <laughs> among these rhythms. As you mentioned, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, supra means above, chiasma is optic chiasma, so that means our left eye signals to the right brain and right eye signals to the left brain, and that happens because the nerve bundles from our left and right eye, they go and crisscross at the base of the brain. So this nucleus is right above the optic chiasma. And why it is called nucleus, it's very well-defined. This is nearly 20,000 neurons. 20,000 may sound like a big number, but that's very tiny compared to uh, billions of cells in our brain. So that means it's smaller than a pinhead. So that's the size of suprachiasmatic nucleus that seems to control all the, rhythm, all the rhythms in the rest of our body. Because experimentally, almost 50 years ago, when scientists accidentally removed this part of the brain, as you can see, imagine it's a very tiny, small um, head of a pin kind of then these rats, they become arrhythmic. So that means they had no sense of day and night. They would actually go to bed and get up in every two to three hours. Surprisingly, uh, in those days, in 70s, when they did the brain transplant, so that means they took a rat's um, suprachiasmatic nucleus, the rat was running at say, or the hamster was running at 24 hours every day, and then the other hamster was running at 22 hours every day because that other hamster had a mutation. So when they swapped the suprachiasmatic nucleus, just 20,000 neurons, they could actually swap their behavior. And that was really stunning. And that's how we established that SCN is the master regulator. And now fast forward, nowadays what we're finding is, scientists are finding that many Alzheimer's patients and patients of neurodegenerative disease, post-mortem, when they're analyzing their brain samples, they're finding that uh, this suprachiasmatic nucleus may be affected in some 
um, dementia patients who actually have irregular sleep-wake cycle. So it's likely that in humans also this is important because when the SCN is affected, then many dementia patients, they lose the sense of day and night. And we know that in severe cases of dementia, people or Alzheimer's disease, people wake up in the middle of the night thinking that it's daytime, they're hungry, and then in the middle of the night, they're super sleepy. So that's the hierarchy. So now, um, since SCN is right above the optic chiasma or the tracks that are that is getting all the light information from the eyes, it's not surprising that SCN is sensitive to light-dark cycle. And why it should be like that? Because if we think carefully about our sunrise to sunrise, that's not exactly 24 hours. Because of the tilt of the planet, it's slightly different as the day gets longer in summertime, that's different, and as the day gets shorter in the wintertime, that also gradually changes. So that means our body's clock, we're thinking about now, now let's dial back to 200,000 years up to 150 years from now before electrical lighting. So our body is designed to track that day-night cycle. So that means every single day, as the day length changes, this morning light would reset our master clock saying, hey, you got to adjust uh, because the sunrise is at a different time. So that's where what was surprising for that process was there are many blind people who cannot read and read anything. They cannot, they, they don't have a sense of the visual world, but when they fly say from east coast to west coast or vice versa, they can, they do get jet lag, but after three or four days, just like the rest of us, they can also reset the clock to the local time. Yeah. And that raised the question, what, have, what is this light signal going to the master clock? And there are also other set of blind people who might have gone to war, lost both of their eyes because of gunshot wounds, or they had surgery for um, cancer in the eyes. And when the eyes are completely removed, then they don't have any sense of day and night. So that means they, we call them the free run because our human circadian rhythm is roughly 24 hours, 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, an average, but some people are 24, some people can be 24 and a half. So they, every day, they will drift their sleep-wake cycle by 10 to 15 minutes. So that led to this curiosity, what is this light sensor in the eye? And that's where, uh, after the human genome was done, uh, in the whole sequence were determined in year 2000, then many scientists, including us, we went back and so <laughs> checked, hey, are there any light-sensing proteins? Because there is a specific signature of these proteins. And we looked and we found this light-sensing protein that senses in blue light. So that's the hierarchy of how light resets SCN clock. And then SCN, these are neurons, they send local connections to other parts of the brain or hypothalamus, the neighborhood of SCN. And these neighborhoods, they control our sleep-wake cycle, they control osmolarity, blood pressure, and also the SCN is very close to um, other brain centers in the hypothalamus that constitute what we call hypothalamus pituitary adrenal or hypothalamus pituitary gonadal axis. So that means this brain region is a strong regulator of almost all hormones, majority of the hormones in our body that are linked to metabolism or reproduction. So in that way, it also makes the uh, makes a good case, good 
framework, how circadian rhythm disruption, or when we work randomly, as in case of shift work, where people do go back and forth between day and night shift, or they do morning shift or night shift, um, their hormones get dysregulated, their sleep-wake cycle is dysregulated, and accordingly, the metabolism and also reproduction are dysregulated. So that's one way that light-dark cycle going through the SCN clock can affect a lot of our physiology and hormones. That's so fascinating. And the SCN is really only through the eye. Yeah. They, it receives light only through, through the eyes. eyes. So there's no other way to affect this, this, the SCN skin. You know, for the longest time, I was thinking there are skin, or there are skin photoreceptors, but that is, that has no impact on the master clock. Yeah, so that's what um, people have uh, shown experimentally. <laughs> there, almost 20, 25 years, 23 years ago, there was a paper showing that. Um, maybe signing light in the back of the knee can reset the clock, but actually um, other people have tried to replicate and it was not replicated. So the, uh, that chapter is almost closed and we now know that it's only the eyes and the blue light and wrist light and that goes through the eyes to reset the clock. There are skin photoreceptor and that they might regulate the local clock, skin clock or... Uh, but in humans, we still are really far from getting a convincing result that these light sensors are important for the local clocks. It doesn't mean that they don't. We just haven't, I mean, the community hasn't done the right experiment yet. And the eye has nothing to do with the ability to see. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. It's, it's solely the light sensing. Yeah, so those yeah. melanopsin cells, they do sense light. And these are not the conventional cells, rod and cone photoreceptors, because rod and cones are almost like the pixels on your iPhone. So there are millions of them that constitute this visual world. But the melanopsin is present only maybe in 5,000 cells. And they also have a very weird characteristic because they need a lot of light to be turned on. And then once they are turned on, they will actually stay on for several seconds. So they're not really good for a visual system. But at the same time, there is some new data showing that this melanopsin system may give us brightness perception. So for example, a lot of people, uh, there are many people who are very sensitive to light. When they go out to the uh, sunlight or even an indoor light, sometimes they're so sensitive to light that they can it can trigger a headache in them. So one idea is the brightness perception in our visual world is also mediated by melanopsin. And in some cases, when this pathway is super activated, that can contribute to light-induced migraine pain or light exacerbation of migraine pain. So that's the other extreme end. So that's why there are some experiments. Um, historically, some experiments are done, and now I guess those are replicated now, showing that those who have migraine pain that's in, that is exacerbated by light or in the other word, if your migraine pain is alleviated if you go and sleep in a dark room, then maybe uh, wearing blue filtering glasses help you to reduce the incidences of uh, migraine or reduce the severity. So this is 
this this study was done long time ago in 80s before even <laughs> melanopsin was discovered uh, but hopefully that will pan out in future to for patient care yeah i'm curious is is there any influence on some of the phytonutrients like lutein things that we know that are good for eyes do they impact the the receptors yeah so the same um uh, lutein and many other things that we take they ultimately get converted to so there are two things one is retinol derivative so uh, retinol is a very broad class of uh, compounds um, they constitute anywhere from things that we add to various face creams <laughs> to reduce the effect of aging to uh, even retinol and many other things so um these photoreceptors the melanopsin also uses one of the derivatives um all cis retinol 11 cis sorry all 11 cis retinol that's the technical term so this uh the protein so the photoreceptor is actually a combination of the protein part and a chemical part and that chemical part is the retinol or retinol derivative and when light hits that retinol then that causes a small chemical reorganization of that molecule and that reorganization triggers the protein to change its shape and that's how the light energy is converted to chemical energy converted to protein change in shape and that triggers a signal what we call signaling process that essentially signals the cell that hey there is light and then that religious little bit of what we call neurotransmitter or you can say brain chemical glutamate mm-hmm. uh, to the scn and then the scn realizes okay so there is light outside and i got to reset my clock <laughs> so <laughs> it's fascinating so there potentially are nutritional interventions that would help with uh, maintaining those circadian rhythms perhaps indirectly with yeah. being able to influence so the, there are some the mouse eye. studies done where the mice were deprived of <laughs> vitamin A and in those cases they also reduce the sensitivity of the system to uh, blue light the other extreme the other spectrum is uh, many of us many many people when we get older then we go through um, our lens transplant right so uh, we remove our natural lens and then put the artificial lens inside the eye and uh, that particular lens because our lens um is actually it transmits little bit of blue light and that's why our eyes can see the blue light and reset our clock but then when we transplant this uh, new lens now you can think of there are lenses that will block all blue light and uv light because people want to block uv light and ultraviolet and blue are very close to each other so sometimes uh, there are some lenses if you remove all the blue light then sounds like a bad, bad idea sounds like a really bad idea <laughs> yeah so we have to we have to keep that in mind what kind of lens we that's important you because there's probably a, a lack of interface between the individuals that are doing the transplant surgery and then the biologists or kidney biology there always seems to be a, a little bit of of lack uh, yeah. in terms of the information crossover You mentioned something that was very interesting and I have seen this in patients when individuals age they seem as if their circadian rhythm changes pretty dramatically um maybe perhaps lead- needing less sleep or they're they're saying that they're waking up earlier is there something that we know happens is it a hallmark of aging 
Yeah, so what happens is um, the converse also happens when kids uh, hit puberty. Um, so as you... So you're giving me a heads up. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can imagine, kids, um, babies, they usually wake up very early in the morning and we think that, okay, so they slept for eight to nine hours, they must be hungry, that's why they're getting up so early. Um, so that's normal. But then when they hit puberty, then something happens. We don't understand how sex hormones interact with the molecular clock in the brain. And uh, two things happen. One is they may be slightly more sensitive to light. So the same amount of light in the evening that is not affecting their sleep might actually keep them awake for a long time. And second, their clock also changes so they're more, they're more likely to wake up late in the morning. So uh, as a result, uh, the teenagers, particularly high schoolers, they're likely to wake up actually later because it's not because they were playing video game. Of course, partly that may be true uh, or uh, whatever they're doing late at night, but biologically they're designed to wake up slightly later. So that's why in another study uh, with um, Horacio de la Iglesia from Seattle, uh, he did this heroic study to delay the high school start time in two high schools in Seattle and found that when high school start time is delayed by an hour, then the kids got 34 minutes extra sleep. The grades improved by 4.5% and their tardiness went down. And so that led to this delay school start time. So, but now, when we hit 50 or 60 around that time, when our sex hormone production is also reduced, then we again revert back. Our circadian clock reverts back. We are more likely to wake up earlier. And that's why we always think, huh, the old people are like babies because they're also waking up early and then they're hungry. So that's one thing that happens. Second thing that happens is our arousal threshold goes down. So what is arousal threshold? The best example is when a mom and baby sleep together. The baby has a very high arousal threshold. So even though the mom may be putting, accidentally putting the hand on the baby, the baby doesn't care, will sleep through. <laughs> but then if the baby kicks a couple of times, then the mom wakes up because the arousal threshold is slightly lower. So similarly, as we get older, our arousal threshold reduces so that small disturbances and small noise, even the other person turning and tossing in the bed can wake us up. Is there any evolutionary advantage to that? Well, we can't actually go back to evolution because, you know, the average life expectancy at the turn of the last century, 1910, was 45 years. <laughs> so <laughs> we can't. Yeah. But I think what was happening was the uh, we do have this idea that the grandmother effect, the grandparents were taking care of the babies and they were the caregiver. So they have to wake up to small cries from the babies to take care of them. That's just a wild guess and hypothesis because of the grandparents caring for the grandkids. Then the other thing that also happens- I hope my parents are listening to this. <laughs> the other thing that also happens is um, we, uh, as we get, there is a thing called sleep debt. So that means as we sleep less, the next day we feel more sleepy. We catch up. So our, our inbuilt system has this catch-up system so that we can catch up with our sleep loss. But as we get older, that catch-up system also breaks down. So even though we slept less, we cannot catch up. So that means we are not feeling as much sleepy as we used to be, but that doesn't mean that our body doesn't need that sleep. So... 
the best example, the best similarity, I guess the best example I can tell you is as when we are very young, a body is like a self-driving car. You don't need much guidance. It's all tuned. It just ignores all the external stimuli so that the babies can go to sleep early, get up early and all that stuff. And then as we get the middle age, it becomes the normal car. We have to pay attention. As we get older, it's a manual car. We have to really pay attention to everything and then try to do things that was automatically done for us. <laughs> you know, I was... As I was thinking about some of the the topics that we would talk about, I looked up the ICD-10 code, right? So these are the diagnostic codes yeah. that we use in medicine. And circadian rhythm sleep disorder is really the overarching, the only one. Yeah. Um, and I was looking at it because you talk a lot about metabolism and immune function and things. Again, some of the data with shift workers, we see increase in blood glucose, increased levels of insulin, potentially higher levels of C-reactive protein. What was so fascinating in terms of diagnosis is there was not anything. There was no metabolic mention, no metabolic impairment mentioned at all. Yeah, um, you know, this is unfortunate, but at the same time, I think this is, we are just the beginning of a big change. Because uh, frankly, for many uh, decades, um, people didn't think that circadian rhythms are real. <laughs> so there is a nice book, uh, uh, Time, Love, and Memory. So in that book, there is a famous picture of this Nobel laureate questioning whether circadian rhythms are real. That's in 1971, that picture. But then if we think about all the major discoveries in circadian rhythm, that circadian clocks regulate aspects of metabolism, that's very relatively new. Because I remember in 2001, uh, when it became easier to look at multiple genes, what time they are going on or off, uh, we published a landmark paper at that time looking at only 6,000 genes, and we found that many rate-limiting steps in many pathways, including cholesterol metabolism, cholesterol breakdown, making up bile acids, glucose metabolism, fat metabolism, all of these key things that liver does are strongly circadian. And that was done in mice. And typically, it takes few years from mice to humans to uh, come to text, medical textbook. Um, and these experiments are not easy because um, in circadian rhythm labs, <laughs> they say that <laughs> one thing that will certainly happen if you work in circadian rhythm lab is you'll disrupt your circadian rhythm and sleep because you have to stay awake and sample things in every one or two hours, which is very difficult in human studies. So that's why the human studies are very difficult. There are few, maybe handful. Actually, you can count them in one hand. That many labs in the entire world can actually do these human studies. And uh, when the number of labs in the world is less than the number of labs in a typical university that does metabolism, then you can see that the uh, progress is slow. But now um, there is another aspect of it. That is, we can go back and study shift workers who have been doing shift work for um, at the start of the Industrial Revolution. And how would you, <laughs> would you define shift work as, as overnight? from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m.? Is there a certain number that you like to think about? Yeah, so it's very difficult to define, but International Labor Organization, it compiled shift work definition from many European countries. And their definition is, if you stay awake uh, for 
two to three hours between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. and are engaged in some kind of work. You just cannot lie in bed. <laughs> lie in bed on Instagram. Yeah. I'm talking uh, to you For 50 yeah. days in a year. So that's uh, surprising, only 50 days, because if you stay awake two to three hours be beyond your habitual bedtime for one night, then your circadian clock is disrupted that day because you are exposed to, obviously you're exposed to light because you're working, doing something. And then it takes two to three days for that clock to reset. So that means for half of the week, you are uh, working against your circadian rhythm. And then the best example is when you fly, say from one time zone to another time zone, or for example, for all of us who are experiencing daylight saving time and then the time change, we know that even one hour time change can disrupt our sleep-wake cycle, our schedule for at least one or two days. So just imagine if two or three hours, if we're staying awake beyond our habitual bedtime on an average once a week, then that's equivalent to shift work. And so by starting shift workers, what is what has become very clear is, um, of course, there is a lot of research and a lot of money and research into cancer because that's a devastating disease. Uh, so what World Health Organization has figured out is uh, firefighters, uh, certain shift workers, uh, they studied firefighters, nurses, painters, and bakers because there is <laughs> these these professions have been there for a long time, and there is a lot of uh, data also. Uh, in those professions, uh, shift work is like a potential carcinogen. Uh, this type of working can increase the risk for cancer. And this is- specific types of cancer or- Yeah, so it's uh, different for different professions. For example, for uh, firefighting, uh, which is mostly a male-dominated profession, they have a different set of um, cancer risk, whereas nurses, which is mostly, which has been traditionally a women-dominant, then that's mostly breast cancer and endometrial cancer and those cancers. Um, but now, what you're finding is almost all shift workers also have very high risk for digestive system cancers that affect the digestive system, colon cancer and and if we go back and see, they also have high risk for other digestive system disorders or diseases. Um, so it seems like one way circadian rhythm disruption affects many of us is through the gut, which ultimately will affect uh, the rest of the body. Yeah, you were talking about that before we started the podcast about how teenagers oftentimes talk a lot about irritable bowel syndrome um, or have GI issues. And how does that interplay? Why? Why would changing sleep-wake cycle have any kind of impact on gastrointestinal health? Well, uh, there are two aspects. When teenagers are <laughs> disrupting their sleep-wake cycle, staying awake into the, until, say, 1 o'clock. And eating Twinkies and all yeah, that. So yeah, so they're not fasting from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m. <laughs> so they're disrupting their circadian rhythm. And as we discussed, the circadian rhythms are present in almost every organ. So now uh, there are a few aspects by which circadian disruption affects gut health. One, starting from our mouth itself. Our mouth has a circadian rhythm in saliva production so that at night it shuts down so that we can sleep, we cannot drown in our <laughs> saliva. And saliva... Yeah, that would not be good. <laughs> yeah, saliva actually neutralizes some acids and our stomach 
produces a lot of acids to digest our food. And there is a circadian rhythm in acid production in the stomach. So that means late at night, starting from, say, 8 p.m. onwards, the same amount of food will produce, will trigger production of more acid than the same amount in the daytime or even earlier in the evening. So that's um, another aspect to keep in mind. Then the third one is as our food is digested in the stomach and then goes to the intestine, the intestine has what we call peristaltic movement. It's Food is not going by gravity in our <laughs> digestive system because we have this tube that goes back and forth. So there is some squeezing action. Uh, the muscles contract and expand. So that's how the food moves. But there's a circadian rhythm to that peristaltic movement. So the intestine actually sleeps <laughs> at night. It's not doing its job of um, squeezing this food. So as a result, um, what is happening is when you when we eat late at night, then we produce a lot of acid. That acid can come up to esophagus and to our mouth, and which is not neutralized because our saliva production has gone down. So they have more reflux. They have more reflux. And then after digestion, when it is going through the intestine, it's actually sitting there. It's not getting digested properly because the peristalsis is slow. And so semi-digested food remains in the, uh, in the intestine for a long time. And uh, we should not forget about the gut microbiome because the microbiome is part of the digestion process. And just like um, in your garden, in summer and winter, you have different flowers because they prefer different type of uh, environment. Similarly, our gut microbiome is very sensitive to pH, food, and other factors. So the gut microbiome is very different between day and night. So we go to bed with a set of gut microbes, and then we wake up with a different set of gut microbes, and then in the middle of the day, we have a slightly different. So that diversity is very important for digesting different types of food, detoxifying sometimes some kinds of food. And uh, when we have this irregular eating pattern, then that also disturbs the diversity of gut microbiome. So we don't have that diversity, we reduce the diversity. And this has been shown in mouse experiment where we can actually take part of the gut and examine what is the gut microbiome look like. So now you can see that there are multiple aspects in which circadian rhythm disruption, particularly um, feeding, eating, fasting uh, rhythm, uh, where now teenagers, until that time, until teenagers, they're very regular because they when when the parents have <laughs> setting their eating fasting schedule, then mm-hmm. hopefully they are very regular. And then all of a sudden, now they have sleepover and night out, and um, and they are kind of getting into shift work schedule essentially because they are staying awake two to three hours beyond their regular bedtime. They are being active in many different ways, and they are also eating late into the night. So just imagine. Um, even in the first few decades of industrialization, women and children were not allowed to do shift work because initially they, <laughs> I think they, they, they realized that then, yeah. <laughs> they knew that it's really bad for your body and we should not um, make those um, damages to women and children. So for a long time, women and children were not allowed to do night shift work in early industrialization. 
Special thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. Listen, during the conversation with Dr. Sachin Panda, I couldn't help but think about my days in residency when I was up all night. My blood work during that time was terrible, even though I was exercising and eating right. And one reason was because of the environment. So whether you are eating right, exercising, and potentially if your environment is having influence on your health and wellness, it is your responsibility to know. That is why I love Inside Tracker. You can head on over to insidetracker.com and you can have your blood analyzed. There's so many different biomarkers, including ApoB and insulin, all which are critical for health and longevity. These panels were created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data. And frankly, it tells you whether you are optimized or you are not. So figuring out where you are to where you want to be is crucial. For a limited time only, you will get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. You know, all this talk with Dr. Sachin Panda made me think about what are the things that we have to do to make sure that we have good eye health and brain health, and what are some of the nutrients needed? This is why I am highlighting Opti Reds 50. It is a superfood red powder, and it really helps your body's natural defenses against the environment. And it has powerful antioxidants in it, things that really support your ability to function in this crazy, crazy physical environment. It has beetroot powder, sweet potato powder, apple extract, apple fiber, all things that maybe on a regular basis you're not consuming a ton of. OptiReds 50 is a great way to do that. It's a great, easy way to get a ton of nutrients. And all you have to do is head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion for a great tasting OptiRed mix. Head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. And listen, don't take my word for it. You will see almost 3,000 reviews on this product. Firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's fascinating because now we're really moving into a 24-hour life. I, I realize that we shouldn't be, but people are working much later. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just kind of the the pace at which everything is is moving. The other thing... So irritable bowel issues, really eating in, on a schedule is key. You also mentioned something else. I was asking you about women, if there was differences between men and women regardless, uh, regarding kind of this circadian rhythm. And you said something very interesting about menstrual cycles. How does circadian rhythms influence menstrual cycles? Yeah, so we discussed about how SCN is right next to the hypothalamus. It's part of the hypothalamus. And then hypothalamus signals the pituitary gland at the base of our brain, which in turn signals two different axes. One is the adrenal, and then the other one is the gonadal axis. So in that way, circadian rhythm, or this 24-hour rhythm, is somehow connected to estrous cycle that we use broadly to describe both animal and human um, estrous cycle or menstrual cycle. 
So the connection, the exact connection is not clear yet how this 24-hour cycle affects, for example, in mice, it's a three and a half day estro cycle, whereas in humans, it's roughly 28 days on an average. But what is clear is if we disrupt circadian rhythm in animals um, by putting them in constant light or even dim light at night, um, because that's disruptive, or giving them access to high-fat, high-sucrose diet where they eat at random time. Then after a few days, their uh, estrous cycle becomes very irregular. And um, now if we look at humans, um, we also see some signs that circadian rhythm disruption, particularly among shift workers, because many shift workers report the first thing when uh, women start doing shift work, the first few things that they complain about is how they lose menstrual cycle, they might lose a period or they become very irregular. Uh, so that's something that is known for a very long time. Now, um, one can say that shift work is very stressful and the stress might be triggering that. So that's why we have to go back to animal experiments where we can keep the animal stress-free because um, our animal means in most of the vivariums, the animals get actually the premier top level healthcare. Every day there is vet checking on them every single day and then they get nutritious food and uh, everything is uh, really- Treadmill. Or treadmill spinning, and then yeah. the temperature is well controlled. They never get heat stress, cold stress, all that stress. So in those cases, what we have found is yes, circadian disruption, either by tweaking the genes or tweaking the environment, will make them irregular. And second is uh, they also have difficulty conceiving because they, uh, you know, mice, they produce a lot of babies, but even uh, they cannot conceive, or even if they conceive, the litter size is smaller because they do have a lot of miscarriages. And uh, these are really uh, interesting finding in mice. What is interesting, what will be interesting is to go back to humans and see whether uh, some of these irregular cycle or missed period can be fixed by circadian rhythm optimization. And this is where um, there is a lot of potential because a um, few years ago, I think we discussed this a few years ago, there was a science teacher in a high school in San Diego area who um, reached out to me saying how she heard about the time restricting or how to optimize your circadian rhythm by maintaining regular eating fasting schedule and also which also helps to go to sleep better. And she was in her mid thirties and then she was irregular. She became much regular in her menstrual cycle. And then she, uh, she was also a counselor for many of the high school kids. And these uh, young women often complain about missing a period or being irregular and how it affected their sports and other things. And she thought, why not try this? So she tried this and then many of her students actually became regular and that's when she reached out to me. And unfortunately, we haven't done a regular, rigorous study because it's very hard to receive funding for this study and also carrying out this study is difficult uh, because of the consenting process and et cetera. Uh, but the bottom line is at least in animal experiments, there is a very strong evidence in, from multiple labs that yes, circadian rhythm disruption can lead to reduced female reproductive um, um, efficacy and also lifespan because 
the other flip side of the story is uh, in recently there was a study showing that if we maintain optimum eating fasting schedule with optimum nutrition then these female rats and mice even when they're older they can still conceive the female mice can still conceive and have babies which is very important because we talk about longevity longevity all the time but we don't talk about female reproductive longevity because that's the test if we can keep women at uh, reproductive stage for longer time that's the true outcome of a longevity program so to put together now there are all these um evidence in animal studies and human studies that are pointing and i think there are some studies also done in um st louis where people looked at how irregular their eating fasting or sleep schedule was and whether they were regular in their menstrual cycle and that showed also mm-hmm. some correlation between being more irregular in sleep wake cycle and being more irregular in menstrual cycle so uh, there is a lot of potential in that area and unfortunately there is not much funding to pursue those studies eventually eventually people are going to see the importance how would someone from your opinion you know again looking at these icd uh, icd 10 codes there it's all related to sleep are there biomarkers that someone or do you think there will be a movement towards being able to look at a lab panel and say you know what you have early signs of circadian rhythm disruption um where will we be able to go so we can identify this early above and beyond just clinical kind of question and answer yeah no this is a this is a billion or multi billion dollar question because putting you on the spot <laughs> yeah because you know for example we do have biomarker if you're drunk we have a biomarker right it's true <laughs> if you're buzzed <laughs> but we don't have a biomarker if you lost sleep uh, let's begin with that sleep disruption whether a pilot has really slept for 8 hours or not we don't know that just imagine so that's why um not only from from regular medical field but from safety industrial safety and those perspective there is a huge push even from dod from faa all these organizations are pushing to find a biomarker of sleep disruption just imagine if you can <laughs> if you can go into the, if the pilot can go into the cockpit and breathe into a breathalyzer and then it will say no you haven't slept enough or a nuclear power plant operator just breathes or takes takes even a test samples or pees into something that will say no you haven't slept enough so that will be so there is a lot of research into that the biggest challenge is circadian rhythms are 24 hours rhythm so you might find some levels are up in the morning but then that level may be down at night and for example if somebody has traveled from six time zones away even though the person slept for 12 hours after traveling since the clock will take six days on an average to reset it becomes very difficult to figure out what phase it is so this is our dream <laughs> and uh, for last 10 years uh, there have been many attempts making progress there are some studies now from germany and also some from um from japan showing that at least from one or two uh, blood draws one can figure out the circadian phase or what 
time of the day your body is but we are not very close to whether the person has actually slept for several hours so yeah. it's a huge challenge yeah. i i think that the outcome clinically the outcomes will be what we care about which yeah. these issues with obesity metabolic syndrome um and i think that it it would be so fascinating if we could do that then we could identify early yeah but i guess right now there are tools so uh, for example almost uh, a lot of people they uh, wear wearables at least a, a watch that is um, our activity tracker or everybody uh, has a cell phone as part of integral part of their body they sleep with the cell phone and get up with the cell phone um so as physicians i guess the first thing would be can they ask hey can you show me how many on an average how many hours you are sleeping means i can right now i can take out my phone and it will tell you how badly i sleep and uh this is something that any physician can do but the question is uh <laughs> are they ready or when they take that information how do they interpret so on an average uh, what the sleep researchers have come to a con- semi consensus is most adults should be in bed for 8 hours so that they can get 6 and 1/2 to 7 and 1/2 hours of sleep because epidemiological studies in all continents of course except the north and south poles <laughs> we're going to leave those out <laughs> we have shown that even on millions of people they have shown that um there is a u curve in amount of sleep and morbidity or even mortality so that means between 6 and 1/2 to 7 and 1/2 hours of sleep uh, there is less comorbidity less disease and also people who habitually sleep between 6 and 1/2 to 7 and 1/2 then they're likely to live longer so this is kind of a magic number um we do see a lot of people don't get that because we have a lot of studies human studies where we put a acti- activity tracker on them and uh, there are many people who don't get consistently six and a half to seven and a half some are five five and a half and you're in medical profession and you know yeah i was just thinking about that, that and, and uh, <laughs> the military profession yeah if we know that it's it's a known carcinogen with just 50 days you're considered a shift worker i you know i was telling you before my husband is a surgical yeah. resident it's his first month he's working 100 hours a week yeah. and he's already done uh, a week of overnight so he's already seven eight ten days into quote shift work. Yeah. But that's also another aspect that we don't understand that how some people are so resilient and some are not because we know that in even in medicine even in many kind of shift work there are a lot of people who are very resilient they can keep their mental health intact they can plow through and then some people are not. And understanding that will be extremely important because just like nowadays we're doing genetic testing as soon as the babies are born to figure out what they are more likely to be susceptible or uh, resistant to so that we can design their life starting from simple things like food allergy or you know gluten allergy or milk allergy we manage that so similarly can we come up with test where we can figure out whether certain people are resilient to shift work and some are not in that way just by of course this is again you are uh, on the border of whether <laughs> you are affecting the employer employee relationship or not but at the same time we got to think about that that in future that may be the way to uh, at least part of the way where we can find out the susceptible individual so that we can offer better care just like in military 
we are always looking for ways to figure out who are more likely to go through the SEAL training so that we don't take too many people and some people will fail. And that costs millions of dollars to taxpayers' money. So military is always already doing that. So why can't we do that for, say, firefighter, for nurses, and then figure out who are at a high risk? For example, those who are at a high risk for breast cancer. Should they be doing shift work? And if they know that, okay, so I have a mutation that may, puts me at a high risk for breast cancer, and in animal studies, we have seen that there are many animals that carry similar kind of mutations that puts them at a high risk for cancer. If we put them in circadian disruption, then the risk for getting, then they do actually get that cancer. And once they get, the severity of cancer is much worse than the other. So these are some of the examples where even now, if we can figure out what our susceptibility is and then ask what is the contributing factor of shift work or shift work like lifestyle, to increasing this risk, then we should be at least more careful. For example, those who are at a high risk for depression or something, then it's not that they should not do that work, but as soon as they know that they're at a high risk, they can take better care. For example, they can go get some daylight during day <laughs> during the daytime so that they, uh, as soon as they feel a little bit low, they can look out for support. So that is one way we can actually integrate circadian rhythm into personalized profession and personalized care. Uh, I definitely want to get to protocols or at least the things that you feel would really help re-regulate an individual and create circadian alignment. But before we do that, I have a, a, a few more questions. This concept of chronomedicine, how we can leverage this circadian rhythm to potentially improve healthcare. Can you talk a little bit about where that is? Is it in its infancy? Are there things that we know? Actually, the chronomedicine history goes back almost 30, 40 years now, <laughs> because in uh, 80s, uh, that's when uh, there was a landmark paper showing, um, actually the paper examined women who were with breast cancer and they were getting different chemo drugs. If the chemo was given in the morning versus afternoon, what is the outcome? What is the benefit, whether it was beneficial or, or not? And what they found was depending on the chemo type, because you know there are different types of chemos, because different chemos affect different target. And depending on the type of chemo, some chemos were more effective if given in the morning, and some were more effective if given in the afternoon. Um, so that was um, landmark paper from 80s that has been cited many times that I would say kind of um, is often cited as an example of chronomedicine. Then starting from there, there are also studies showing even heart valve replacement surgery, which is very complicated surgery. And there was a nice study came out, I think in seven, uh, 2017 or 2018, um, 2016 or 17, um, they followed nearly 500 patients who went through the surgery by the same surgical team in the same hospital. And they found that those who underwent surgery in the morning had much better survival up to five years than those in the afternoon. And it was not related to 
fatigue of the team. I was just team. thinking, was it about and fatigue of the team? Yeah. <laughs> it was not related to that because they actually went back and replicated aspect of that in a mouse study and found out that one of the clock gene was actually responsible for that. Similarly, in uh, mouse studies, they have done partial hepatectomy. So that means taking out part of your liver. It is uh, used in some cases of liver cancer, for example, surgery. And they found that um, the surgery in mice, it's a different time because mice are night acting, whereas we are day active. Again, the same result that depending on what time of the day or night the surgery was done, the liver regrows much better. Um, then there was another study that was done in our lab. We know that there are many cancer patients who do get radiation therapy. And um, radiation has many side effects. And one of the side effects is you may lose hair. So we did a very simple experiment. <laughs> this, this experiment could have been done 50 years ago. We took mice and then gave them the same dose of irradiation that is given to humans for in cancer treatment. And actually mice tolerate that. And we gave the uh, dose either in the morning or in the evening. So morning would be um, our evening and mouse evening is our morning. So what is interesting was in the morning when we irradiated these mice, then these mice uh, lost 85% of their hair. In the evening, the same dose of uh, irradiation, they returned 85% of their hair. <laughs> so it's wild but that's not i mean i know that those are my studies but are some of the things that they're finding uh being implemented in clinical practice because i haven't seen that yeah I, I haven't seen a routine implementation of any kind of chronomedicine so these are all the procedures because even for chemo people have to come to the clinic and scheduling the clinic becomes uh, the overriding factor uh, so now if we go to medicine, um, really the pills, then, um, for example, we know that the blood pressure regulation is very circadian. And in fact, for a healthy person, the blood pressure should go down at night because just like a body cools down, our breathing goes down, our blood pressure also goes down at night so that our heart can rest and recover for the next day. Uh, and those who... Uh, so uh, even high blood pressure patients who still have lower blood pressure at nighttime, we call them dippers, they, are, they have much better outcomes. They are more less likely to get a cardiac event in the long run than non-dippers whose blood pressure doesn't go down at night. So now you'd imagine that if you are giving a blood pressure lowering medication in the evening to anyone, the dippers would dip more and then the non-dippers might also dip so that the long-term benefit will be better for everybody. And in fact, uh, there are epidemiological studies where people have gone back and asked, what time of the day did you take the blood pressure medication? And then they track them for the next five years or 10 years. They find that any blood pressure medication, irrespective of what it is treating, which target it is, um, irrespective of blood pressure medication type, those who received the who, who took the medication in the evening were had much better uh, cardiovascular health uh, five to ten years um, following um, in the follow up than people who took the medication in the morning. Of course, there can be many confound because people will say, "Well, if you're taking in the night, then maybe you have a set routine, so you're taking medication every day. In the morning, you might forget all that stuff." But even in animal studies, we do see why that might work. Uh, so that's why this is one area where 
you know, among your listeners, maybe half of the U.S. adult population are mild or high, uh, severely hypertensive. So that means maybe one quarter to one third of the adult population is on an antihypertensive drug. And they can do the experiment themselves. If they have a blood pressure monitor at home, they can actually check whether that nighttime blood pressure is dipping before bedtime. And if they take the medication in the evening, then what happens? Of course, you have to consult with your physician before yes, you do yes, anything. Yeah. So this is... <laughs> this is <laughs> all saying, hypothetical. This yeah. is all hypothetical, yes, but this is something to keep in mind, or at least people can discuss with their physicians. What about hormone replacement, testosterone therapy? Have, is there really any data or even thyroid hormone therapy? Things of that nature? Well, the thyroid hormone, it's always, uh, you know, the morning thyroid yep. hormone has become the uh, way to go. And I think uh, we don't see much um, difference. In fact, we do have a app called My Circadian Clock. Um, there are tens of thousands of people who have been using the app. So there are we get a lot of medication data. <laughs> you know, That's fascinating. We, Anything that really surprised you from well, so, being able to... So blood pressure medication, what we see is nearly two-thirds of our users, um, they take blood pressure medication in the morning, only one-third take at night, bedtime. And we hope that that will, um, whether that changes or whether that has effect. But when it came to thyroid medication... 95% Everyone take in, in the morning. morning. But the, just because everyone's doing it that way doesn't mean that that's probably the most effective way. Uh, again, I don't know. We seem to do things in medicine over and over again, whether it's uh, yeah. optimal or not. Yeah, so th it'll be interesting, be interesting to see it. that. Uh, yeah. You, you talk a lot about in some of your papers, the impact, because I know you did time-restricted feeding, which obviously we'll get into because everyone wants to hear about that. But what was so fascinating to me was this uh, concept that circadian misalignment can really affect the um, utilization of certain substrates, whether it's proteins, fats, carbohydrates. I'm curious, when we think about a circadian rhythm, please correct me, the major influences are light, food, and activity. Yeah. Is there anything else major, maybe temperature? Or Light and food are more direct. Okay. Temperature can be indirect. For example, nighttime temperature, if it is high, then you may not sleep well, <laughs> and that will affect your mood and other stuff the next day. What about where does exercise fall into the, the stimulus of circadian rhythms? Yeah, so exercise is both an output and also an trainer. Um, and that means there is an optimum time for us to do exercise. We're going to talk about it. Everyone wants to know. Um, but before you get there, you ready for my question? Yeah. And yes, the optimal time to do exercise. This idea of change in substrate utilization, yeah. shift workers, we see increase again in insulin, glucose, they gain yeah. body fat, skeletal muscle. Do you need more water? I can arrange. No, I'm fine. Okay. I have. Um, <laughs> skeletal muscle influence, while it is not a primary site for uh, fat storage, lipid storage, triglycerides, it definitely exists, right? Yeah. There, of course, there's the athlete's paradox, but above and beyond that, in obesity, we do see this decrease in flux within skeletal muscle yeah. and increase in intramuscular lipids. With circadian misalignment, is that utilization also affected? Yes, that's actually affected. And uh, these are the studies we have done in... Uh Fruit flies and mice. But also, I didn't know how fruit flies. I saw some of the, the studies yeah. that you yeah. published, but I didn't quite understand how the fruit flies translate over. It's a 
you know, translate over to human skeletal muscle and how you could look at fiber type or myogenesis. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. Um, so fruit flies, we, uh, fruit flies actually led the foundation for circadian rhythm because the three uh, scientists who got the Nobel Prize for circadian rhythm, and they actually studied fruit flies and figured out how the clock works in fruit flies and then the same mechanism uh, not exactly the same protein, but the same mechanism is also present in humans. Uh, many of the genes are similar in humans. Uh, one gene was not uh, similar, but that's that's the minor detail. In terms of muscle, um, fruit flies, actually when we study fruit fly muscle, we are not uh, studying their, <laughs> their hands and legs. We actually study the flight muscle because the flight flies have to fly and they have to flap their wings. And um, of course, we don't have the same type of muscles and other stuff, but what is interesting is just like in human obesity, there is intramyocellular lipid deposits. So that means excessive fat inside the muscle. Similarly, these flies also store some fat in the muscle. And as a result, what happens is they cannot fly enough. <laughs> so we do <laughs> their flight test. I'm never going to look at a, a fruit fly again. In fact, I kind of feel really guilty for killing fruit flies now. That's um, okay. They're but, very resilient. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> they're very resilient. Not the ones in my kitchen. Yeah. Uh, I'm never going to look at a, a fruit fly again. Yeah, so uh, in that case, what, uh, what uh, we have seen is, yes, circadian rhythm disruption, particularly when these fruit flies eat randomly, um, between day and night, then they deposit more uh, fat and they also cannot fly because uh, it's not only because they're fat, because they they don't gain that much weight, but they, their flight muscles just become um, less effective. And then the converse is if we actually do time-restricted feeding where the fruit flies have access to food for 12 hours during their wakeful time during the day, then they can reduce that intramyocellular lipid deposit. Um, they lose that fat from the muscle, and also they can improve their flight uh, so they can fly. Do we them. know, is it because of the food restriction or is it because of the activity? Do you think one comes first? I, I know that's a really difficult question. Uh, I'm just curious. I think the food restriction, because what happens is, um, you know, we always talk about, um, okay, so let's go back and think about um, things that people talk about longevity. For example, they talk about metformin, how it affects AMP kinase, which mimics fasting, and similarly, um, rapamycin, all these things. Uh, what is interesting is circadian rhythm actually regulates all these pathways in a way that, uh, for example, AMP kinase becomes active for a certain number of hours when you are fasting. Similarly, mTOR becomes less active when it is when you are fasting. So it's almost like putting ourselves on two different drugs by just feeding fasting cycle. So similarly, in uh, all of these are affecting fuel utilization, and in muscle, um, our muscles have to build muscle, have to store protein, etc. But at the same time, it also has a quality control mechanism. So that means our damaged proteins from muscle or some part of the muscle protein has to turn over, has to recycle. And that recycling happens when we are fasting. 
of course uh, people may cringe that we may lose some muscle but actually it's part of our natural process that we uh, we break down a little bit of protein and that amino acid comes to the liver um, when we are fasting and at the same time when we eat and uh, now this is something that we have uh, done in mice and hopefully it will be done in humans too uh, what we're finding is this eating followed by in mice uh, 14 hours of fasting or 16 hours of fasting is a very strong trigger for muscle protein synthesis so there are two things happening the muscle protein is recycled during the fasting time and then there is new protein synthesized when we eat when the mice eat so as a result these two combination are actually improving the quality of the muscle protein and that may be the reason why we have seen in mice mice that go through this feeding fasting cycle they have much higher endurance actually their endurance is almost double of course mice everything is magnified right <laughs> except their size yeah, yeah except for their size so that's one thing and then when it comes to carb also carb um, most of the carbohydrate that we eat it gets converted to glycogen and then that glycogen gets stored and then again this there is a circadian rhythm in glycogen formation and also breakdown of the glycogen and in fact one of the master regulator of that glycogen synthesis glycogen synthesis kinase it's a kinase that phosphorylates something uh, that also uh, phosphorylates or modifies one of the clock proteins so that means there is a strong association between how we utilize carbohydrate and how that carbohydrate utilization also talks to the clock mechanism itself and then when it comes to fat again the amp kinase um, that we talk about as target of metformin and the amp kinase also targets many fat metabolizing enzymes and uh, as a result those um, processes are also regulated by feeding fasting cycle so in this way um carbohydrate fat and protein all of these are linked to circadian rhythm and also circadian rhythm in feeding and fasting and when we extend that feeding period then we disrupt many of these and also we should not increase the fasting period because too much of fasting can also disrupt that so finding this optimum balance is the key <laughs> to figure out so what would that be if you were to say okay Well, I'd love to stick to exercise uh, yeah. to start because yeah. I think that that's really fascinating. Yeah. What would be the optimal time to train? Does it matter if it's endurance? Does it matter if it's weights? Is it the actual muscle contraction or is it the increase in catecholamines or other markers or or other um, you know, biological yeah. compounds that that make the difference? Yeah, so um, you know, exercise any exercise because you know we're going to train after this right you, yeah yeah I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah tell yeah. you that we're doing some yeah. push-ups yeah and yeah a couple hours later maybe we'll do a cold plunge no. yeah uh, so the bottom line is any exercise is better than no exercise let's make totally. make it sure that that's that um, message goes across because uh, the median step counts in the u.s now is 3000 steps which is way way lower than uh, what you would expect yeah. it should be at least 7000 or more um so that's just step counts and less than 5% of people actually get recommended level of exercise in the US 
So any exercise is better than no exercise. Fair, fair. So then we should think about, okay, so what time and why? Um, so there are, again, this is a field that has very rich history of what time athletic performance, for example, peaks. Uh, going back to mid 80s when people looked at uh, NFL players uh, <laughs> performance of winning and then they found that when West Coast team flew to East Coast and played against the home team they had a much better chance of winning against the home team and the odds were much better than Las Vegas odds score so it was much better if you knew when the players actually flew on Sunday whether they flew on Sunday and then if they played on Monday, then they had a higher chance. The reason being, um, you know, athletic performance or physical performance is a product of many of our organs acting together. Our heart, our lung, our skeletal muscle, even motor coordination, all of these brain function, all of them have to work together along with fuel utilization. And all of these processes are controlled by circadian rhythm and the optimum it's almost like all the stars align for better performance because um, that's also the time when our core body temperature is slightly higher. So body temperature is higher, so that means our joints are more flexible and we have less risk for injuries. So that means we can push ourselves faster, harder. So what time? So it's um, late afternoon. I'll leave. Again, this is all related to your light-dark cycle and your eating-fasting cycle. But in general, it's... Uh, um, late afternoon, early evening. So you can say between 4 and 7 p.m. for an average person who is going to bed between 10 and 11. And, um, and that's just athletic performance, right? There so is... that's a um, uh, few things. Athletic performance and also lower risk for injury because there are many elderly people who want to go to the gym, want to perform, and um, they often get injured. And once you're injured, then it becomes difficult to come. So that's another reason. Uh, one more thing is um, morning exercise. Of course, a lot of us young people and healthy people can do morning exercise and there is nothing wrong or bad about that. But what happens is our heart uh, is not prepared enough in the morning and particularly those who are waking up to an alarm clock. Oh, that means- course, yeah their heart, their lungs is not prepared enough for a rigorous, very strenuous exercise. And um, the evidence is, uh, if we look at the heart attack, what time of the day heart attack peaks? It's actually early morning, that's when heart attack increases, the incidence increases, because your heart is not ready, all of a sudden you are waking up, and your heart has to pump a little bit faster to make you wake up or go uh, or if you're walking or if you're exercising, that's when it happens. And you know, you, if you talk to a lot of people who had a heart attack, and if they have a heart attack in the gym, I would say it is more likely that that happened in the early morning exercise, particularly when they either came back from a trip within the few days, or they didn't have a good night's sleep, or they woke up to an alarm clock. So that those are the things that one has to keep in mind that if you travel, then it's okay to get up and then just pay attention, maybe not do a too strenuous exercise. And that, it, so it's not really related to cortisol or? Well, the cortisol actually peaks within an hour after waking up. It's, uh, that's the highest level of right. cortisol in the entire day, even though you may be stressed, you may be, <laughs> whatever happens in the rest of the day, the highest level is when we wake up. <laughs> yeah. But that, But what you're saying is that's not 
necessarily the stimulus for that may be one of the stimulus means uh, it's already high and if you are still pushing it higher and your heart is not ready enough that that can trigger it could someone so do we have natural sweet uh sleep wake cycles for example let's say someone wants to train in the morning could they potentially go to bed at nine o'clock and know that they are so you can train train yourself yourself, to do it yeah but the evidence would suggest that over time, between four and seven is yeah. when the body is more prepared. How do we define preparation? Yeah, so this is where it goes back to your biomarker of circadian rhythm, <laughs> right? So, uh, I mean, it's uh, really hard to define preparation. So, for example, if you had lunch, say, one or two before one o'clock, then um, four o'clock will be ideal time when you your digestion process has slowed down mm-hmm. and you have digested a good amount of food and you're light enough to go uh, start exercise. Uh, so it's a very difficult term to uh, figure out exactly what time. Um, but in, so that's why in general, it's the late afternoon. Then there is another reason why late afternoon because um, now there are many control studies on people with hypertension or people with type two diabetes. And those with hypertension, it is now clearly shown that the same exercise late afternoon, again, between four and seven, uh, roughly, is more effective in reducing blood pressure than the same exercise in the morning. And then for type two diabetes, the same thing. The, this was a study from, um, from uh, Karolinska Institute, Stockholm. This is a crossover study. So that means the same individuals went through both the treatments. So this is a study with type 2 diabetes, and they were put a continuous glucose monitor so that um, the researchers could see 24 hours how the glucose profile is. And these patients uh, went through morning high-intensity interval training or late afternoon high-intensity interval training. So the first one group went to the morning, then after the rest, several couple of weeks of rest, then they came back and did the afternoon, and the other group did the other way around. And in both groups, what they found is the late afternoon, early evening, that exercise was much more effective in reducing 24 hours blood glucose than the same exercise in the morning. So it was clinically significant. It's, it was clinically significant. So then the question is, you might say, why? Um, there is a circadian rhythm in pancreas that produces insulin. And the bottom line is towards the end of the day, um, actually in the first half of the day, it doesn't mean 6 a.m. to 12 a.m., but <laughs> 12 noon, but you would say roughly after waking up for the next six to eight hours, our pancreas is much more effective in producing enough insulin um, so irrespective of carbohydrate dose, it's yeah, just, it's, it's it's just primed to produce more insulin, uh, produce and release. Then in late afternoon and evening, it kind of goes to sleep almost. Um, and at the same time, we know that independent of insulin, just muscle or physical activity can also enable muscle to absorb a lot of glucose without help from insulin. So this may be another reason why late afternoon, early evening exercise when our pancreas is actually slowing down might give a boost to better absorb that glucose and maintain blood sugar level within healthy range. So there are now all these reasons for uh, people with 
athletic performance peak athletic performance or if you are <laughs> just uh, if you have a risk for heart attack or something to hypertension and high blood sugar and that covers more than half of the adults <laughs> i mean it, it it truly is fascinating to think that we can leverage the times of when we're doing things yeah. to support our biology which moves us into the next question really food and i know you've worked on really some pivotal studies regarding time restricted feeding versus calorie control and in there i know that there was a low carb diet can you talk about when the ideal time to eat is and we still have to uh i i don't know if that is also if certain macronutrients do better you know you just mentioned that pancreas is more uh, active in the morning so yeah. again I, I still wouldn't say we front load carbohydrates but maybe uh, um i know yeah. that these are pretty uh, co you know yeah. complex topics so we'll do our best yeah so i guess uh, i always uh, see eating and sleep at two side of the coin so that means we have to also think about sleep um and eating uh, in terms of that relative time when we should sleep relative to when we eat or when we should eat relative to what time we are waking up or going to sleep um so in that context uh, irrespective of what time somebody is waking up whether it's 4am or 8am or 9am or 10 one should wait for at least an hour or two before the first bite and the reason is that's the hour or two when cortisol is at its peak and we know that we should not eat during peak cortisol level so um, that makes sense that we should not eat for 1 to 2 hours after waking up and then after your first bite one should try to eat everything within 8 9 10 or maximum 12 hours um and then the again this is where when you go to sleep matters because your last bite should be at least 3 hours before your bedtime because although you finished your last bite your stomach will take another 4 to 5 hours to digest that food and when you're digesting that food your core body temperature is high because all the blood's good chunk of the blood circulation is going to the stomach and the digestive system to absorb nutrient and when your core body temperature is high it's difficult to fall asleep it's not impossible but it's difficult to fall asleep or to sustain that sleep um so that's why i'm not talking about mm -hmm. 9 am to 5 pm or anything i'm talking about relative to your sleep time and um and again um if you suppose say you ate for 12 hours your first calorie and last calorie is 12 hours so after your last calorie again for the next 5 hours your stomach is not getting rest <laughs> it's still digesting so in fact at the end your stomach gets only 7 hours of sleep <laughs> which is not enough for the stomach to repair itself mm. um so that's the um, bottom line of when we should eat now a lot of people they come back and say well i'm not very hungry in the morning so i can wait until noon some people who are even waking up at 6 or 7 and say well i'm not hungry so i should wait until noon and then eat after that um there is not much study to show in a like a crossover study or something showing when they should be eating so 
uh, I'm not in favor or against people who want to wait till noon or one o'clock. But what I strongly believe is they should stop eating three hours, two to three hours before bedtime. That's much more important. Um, the other thing that happens is um, almost two to three hours before bedtime, a melatonin level begins to build up, it begins to rise to slowly build that sleep pressure. And research only in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, I would say, starting from human genetic studies showed that just like our uh, melatonin makes our brain to sleep, it also makes our pancreas to slow down. So that means melatonin inhibits, puts a break on this process where glucose triggers pancreatic islet cells to produce insulin and melatonin puts a break on that. So that means the same amount of glucose may not be enough to produce enough insulin to manage the blood glucose level. So since melatonin level begins to rise up slowly two to three hours before our bedtime, if we eat close to our bedtime, even three hours before bedtime, then there is a chance that our blood glucose level may go slightly higher than if we had the same meal a couple of hours earlier. So that's one reason why uh, it's important to pay attention to your sleep. So the bottom line is, in the morning, wait for at least one or two hours, and in the evening, you should not eat for three hours before your habitual bedtime. I think that's really good advice, super easy to follow. Thoughts on melatonin supplementation? <laughs> Did you know I was gonna ask you? When people talk about melatonin, then. <laughs> I'm just curious, because uh, you know it seems as if, again, in the aging population, yeah. melatonin goes down. Um, so, you have to, I, so in when I was at WashU, one of the things that we did yeah. is for delirium is we gave people Remaltian, which yeah, is Remaltian. Yeah. melatonin. Yeah, Remal, um, melatonin it, receptor agonist. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it cleared them up in a heartbeat. I, I looked like a very smart doctor, you know, because you have the vascular surgeons coming in and, and the patients are delirious, but it worked like a charm. Yeah. Well, they were not getting sleep enough <laughs> right. sleep and now absolutely, and you don't want to put them on a sleeping pill. But, no Seroquel or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, actually, um, melatonin receptor agonist or melatonin or melatonin itself, uh, pretty good. And at the same time, as a physician, you know that <laughs> they have to be taken. There's no with free some, lunch. Yeah. No free lunch, and then they have to be dosed properly. And melatonin not being controlled in the U.S. Um, Actually, now you can easily go to the store and get 10 milligram melatonin pill. But I remember when uh, in 2001, 2000, uh, 96, 97, when I started uh, grad school, sometimes for travel, I was looking for melatonin and it was hard to get three milligram melatonin. It was mostly one meg or two meg. Okay, so now let's uh, think about how, um, so when we take melatonin, a good chunk of that melatonin gets metabolized by our uh, kidney. So nearly 60, 70, or even 80% of it is cleared within 15 minutes. Um, so that led to the idea that we should have more melatonin or slow-release melatonin. And all of this uh, dosing formulation or research on melatonin, how it affects our sleep or how it affects cancer, for example, uh, all of these were done before human geneticists figured out that those with a mutation in the melatonin receptor have a high risk for obesity and diabetes. 
and that led to the effect of melatonin on pancreas. But before that, we always thought that the only role of melatonin is to make our body to sleep, and maybe it's also good because it's an antioxidant. So more is better, that's what we thought. So now, if you're taking five milligram of melatonin a couple of hours before your, or before bedtime, then uh, you're likely maintaining pretty high level of melatonin when we wake up. So for example, in the middle of our night, in the middle of our sleep, our melatonin levels go up to say 150 to 200 nanogram per ml. Pretty low, means uh, it sounds very low, but daytime it's below 10, uh, 15 nanogram. Uh, but if somebody takes five milligram of melatonin at the evening, then that person is likely to have more than 100 nanogram even two hours after waking up. It's pretty high level of melatonin that person would have. And that's why a lot of people, they would complain that, yeah, I slept well, but melatonin somehow gives me a little groggy next day morning, so I need coffee to wear off the event, <laughs> the effect. So at the end, what we are, what is happening is we are beginning our day with coffee and ending with melatonin to counteract each other's uh, effect. So now in those cases, uh, people are actually taking exogenous melatonin, three meg or higher. Um, although it's difficult to go get a melatonin test in the morning to see how much of melatonin is in your blood. Of course, you can go and get that test done. But the rule of thumb is you still have pretty high level of melatonin. And this melatonin that we're exogenously taking, light has no impact on it because light affects the pineal gland, which produces melatonin. So it puts a break on pineal melatonin production. But once it is in the bloodstream, light has barely any effect on it. So that means light has no effect on how much melatonin you took. So the morning light exposure will not reduce your melatonin if you have taken a melatonin pill previous night. Stop overdosing yourself on melatonin, otherwise you're going to be exhausted and you're not going to be able to pull yourself out of it unless you're drinking a triple espresso. Yeah, and then for people who have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, if they're taking uh, 3 to 5 meg or higher level of melatonin the previous night, Uh, and they're more likely to have high level in the morning, for them it becomes even more important that they should not eat a sugary, uh, high-carb breakfast early in the morning. And uh, so these are some of the caveats that uh, people are finding that melatonin is good for sleep, but it has to be taken and more regulated. Maybe physicians can recommend a few things. One is... um, don't take your melatonin pill with your dinner because <laughs> that's... <laughs> yeah, there you go. Not, not ideal. At least uh, two hours after dinner, you should take your melatonin close to bedtime. And people always ask me, and then I say, our sensitivity for melatonin is very different. For example, I am, I am a cheap date for melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> I can take one mig and I'll fall asleep. But I know people... Uh, who are even uh, more sensitive to 500 nanogram, uh, sorry, um, micrograms. So that means half a milligram is enough. And these are like 250 pounds. This is, size doesn't matter. <laughs> and at the other end, I have also seen people who take 15 milligram because 10 milligram will not put them to sleep. So melatonin is a thing that um, people 
may have to tighter and then yeah. figure out and play around when you're not traveling because <laughs> when you're traveling yeah and also if you're type 2 diabetic then it's more important that you uh, play around and uh, if you can put a glucose mo- continuous glucose monitor then it's even better than you can play around your dose that that is important and i had have not thought about that before you talked about carbohydrates in the morning is there a time for dietary protein and fat I think morning is morning is good for everything, everything. because okay. there are also studies in Japan that came out I think uh, they showed that particularly for older women protein intake in the morning was much better for maintaining their muscle strength and muscle mass than protein intake in the late afternoon or evening and um, you know when you think about a healthy I mean uh, lifestyle is all about quality quantity and timing of nutrition sleep and activity and of course we are talking about timing but we should not ignore the quality and quantity and in terms of quality um, for example the best breakfast would be a bunch of complex carb with good fiber and also protein and fat because that will help what we see in our clinical studies is when people go through 14 hours of fast and they're eating their first breakfast then they're likely to eat a bigger breakfast and um, breakfast is the only meal on which we have good control if we're eating breakfast at home you're absolutely right you're absolutely right once you're getting out of the home mm-hmm. then you have no control very little control over what you will eat and how much you will eat so uh, what happens is when you eat a good healthy breakfast healthy beans for example i eat uh, oatmeal and then i have some uh, egg white or something and Uh, fruit so that becomes very healthy but at the same time the big breakfast will also prevent me from eating snacks at work or wherever i'm going so i'm less likely to pick up that donut or any sugary snack so i does two things bigger breakfast and your pancreas is much more ready and since you have gone through that overnight fast we to recall our discussion about muscle that's the time when protein synthesis is also much better after overnight fast when you are eating so in that way having a good dose of protein also helps to build that muscle and repair i i couldn't agree with you more and also that the studies are done with that yeah, first yeah, meal yeah. Yeah. again like you said it's so easy to control for in terms of uh, relating it to this light and light viewing and circadian entrainment how do you recommend people do that is there a certain amount of time outside is there a certain amount of time that they should just be outside yeah so um this is becoming more and more important because light does few things one is it reduces um, biochemically it reduces the melatonin production so that way uh, it also reduces sleepiness because even after we wake up for at least one and a half hour in some cases two hours the melatonin level is relatively high and light just reduces you know that. my kids don't have seem to have high melatonin level when they wake up they're just ready to go yeah it's a different <laughs> i mean they're just, they might just have like, high cortisol level <laughs> yeah i mean did you just drink a whole bunch of coffee or yeah. what but yeah. for the most so, part yes the second thing that um, it does is research our clock so um, and then the third one is bright light during daytime it uh, increases alertness um reduction of depression doesn't mean that you feel more alert um there there is a different switch for alertness so your executive function also improves with that 
And then daytime, uh, there was another study we just um, finished. And again, it's uh, Horacio de la Iglesia who published it. Uh, and this confirms some of the studies done from early on that daytime bright light exposure, for some reason, we don't understand why, it increases nighttime melatonin level. So going outdoor, getting some bright light is almost equivalent to taking a melatonin pill without the adverse effect of all these things. So it's pineal melatonin is actually produced to a high extent. So now if we combine all of this together, then the question is how much light, for how long, and when, right? So um, again, studies have shown that uh, for rule of, as a rule of thumb, 1,000 lux of light, I'll get to what is that, um, for 30 to 60 minutes is enough for an average person to reduce feeling low, increase alertness. So one lux of light is having a candle in a dark room and sitting one feet or one arm length away. So 1,000 lux is typically, in Texas in a sunny day, if you just open your cotton, you have a glass window, even though the sun is not coming to your room, if you sit within a, within, within a yard from that glass window, then you are getting roughly 800 to 1,000 lux of light. If you're going outdoor in a cloudy day, cloudy, snowy, even in Minnesota, <laughs> Minnesota in January. Oh. <laughs> if you're going out, you're getting cloudy day. That's 5,000 lux of light. So that's five times more than what you need. But you know, you cannot stay outdoor in Minnesota for one hour yeah. working. Um, then in the middle of the day, for example, in Texas now, it'll be 200,000 lux. And 200,000 degrees, so. <laughs> yeah, something like <laughs> so. Um, so that's the rule of thumb, that 1,000 lux, so that means if it is a pleasant day, then you can be even under tree and or shed outdoor for an hour, and that will be enough because you're getting 5,000 to 10,000 lux to uplift your mood and uh, entrench circadian rhythm, all this stuff. Um, so light, only through the eye. It's light viewed through the eye. Light viewed through the eye. So that means you should not be sitting under the um, under the shed and wearing, wearing sun, your sunglasses, sunglasses. very yes. heavy sunglasses. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that defeats the purpose. Mm. So now the bottom line is, well, nowadays, particularly after COVID, we are talking about how COVID changed our teenagers and many adults are feeling more depressed and all that stuff. And if we see one common denominator, that is we are spending more time indoor. And we are also spending more time indoor away from light. So for example, it's it goes both ways. In Texas, now that is, it's so sunny, so hot, people close their windows, window curtains, and then make it really cool and dark inside. And in fact, we do have uh, special watches where we track how much light people get. And even in San Diego, which is pleasant and uh, sunny, almost 250 to 300 Best. years. Yeah, I don't know how you survive that terrible weather. But. Yeah, so, but there also what we are finding is people spend less than an hour um, exposed to more than 1,000 lux of light because they're, they're driving from their garage to work. Mm. <laughs> and then when they're inside the car, they also have heavy sunglasses, um, even though you don't need for most part. Sometimes you do need sunglasses. But, your sun, but most of our glasses are filtering out UV light. 
that you don't need. So, so the bottom line, bottom line is, yes, you need one hour of light. And then if somebody is depressed, then you need 5,000 to 10,000 lux of light for an hour. So now we're talking about a lot of mental health crisis and teenagers and college students that are going through depression. And we think about, okay, how to improve access to mental health. And you know, if you look at the number, then there is no way in the next five years we can produce enough mental right. health care providers to. Right. But what we can do is, if you are really concerned about somebody's mental health, the best thing you can do is take that person out for a walk for an hour during daytime. I like that. Easy. Yeah, easy that's fix. easy. And, you know, there are a lot of people like that. And I have seen people come up to me and say, well, you know, when we go out, you bring so we combine so many things. Of course, you are exposed to light, but the social aspect, or if you're walking in the garden or in a park, then that nature walking itself, all of these uplift your mood. So why not do that? If you're concerned about somebody's mental health, whoever is listening, just make it a point at least once a week or once in uh, twice a week, just like you would take out take somebody out for a tea, coffee, or anything, or dinner, make it a point that you do that during daytime, sit outdoor, even if you have lunch, breakfast, or go for a walk, do that for your friend who is feeling low, and that can have a huge impact. Yeah, that's, again, that's such good advice, and so easy, so yeah. easy to do. So that's why I said, you know, daylight is anti-depressant. It's mm. plentiful and free. You just have to make the effort to get up. Yes, <laughs> yes. Have you seen a, a lot of influx in the photobiomodulation in terms of red lights uh, for healing? Have, I'm sure you've seen a ton of that. Yeah, sure I've seen a lot of that. that. And um, unfortunately, I haven't done much research mm. in that aspect. Um, yeah. Where, where do you feel that the field is going? What are you working on next? I'm sure that the information and the signs that we're hearing now um, is probably, again, you've been aware of this for years now, right? And so typically there's yeah, but, something up your sleeve that's next <laughs> or where the, the field is going. No, I think, um, you know, we don't know the mechanism for a lot of this. Even, for example, we talked about chronomedicine and based on animal works, we think that nearly 85% of FDA-approved drugs might have a better time when they're taken. But then... You know, even animal studies with 800 plus FDA approved drugs to do that systematically and to see whether there is in fact efficacy or not, we don't know that. So those are um, some of the stuff that the field will go and address. Then in terms of patient care, um, we haven't done, means when I say we, doesn't mean me, but the field, our community, we haven't done systematic studies, say, lighting schedule or nutrition schedule in hospital setting. Can we improve care in a way that even if we reduce hospital stay by one day on an average, one day of hospital care is somewhere between fifteen to $20,000. Yeah, <laughs> definitely reduce the burden. So that will reduce the burden. Uh, so we need systematic study on that. Similarly, um, old as adult care, old as uh, uh, as care, uh, whether it's dementia patient, uh, how to optimize their lighting, 
nutrition timing and uh, also medication timing because every day they have quality day that reduces the burden on the caregivers and also improves their quality of life the quality of everybody's life who care for them and then on the babies kids and uh, there also there is very little research on circadian rhythm and uh, and brain health for example there is a rise in autism spectrum disorder adsd we don't know because there are very few studies showing that yes increasing light during daytime or reducing light in the evening can reduce uh, the severity of asd or adsd but those are small studies and again doing any study on pediatric population is extremely hard and we need that focus we also need support from patient advocacy group to do this kind of studies because only when the patient advocacy groups um, speak up then nih and other funding agencies they they pay attention then the other thing is sleep how reduced sleep or sleep disruption affects our health those things have not been systematically studied um the bottom line is we don't know how optimum nutrition how optimum sleep or how optimum exercise affects our entire body we're not talking about only in exercise we're not talking about exercise in muscle but how exercise affects our kidney for example or how exercise affects our brain health we have no idea we just say that yes it does but which part of the brain and where so uh, we are doing those kind of very systematic studies where for example we published one in the study was done in mice young mice we did time restricted feeding where the mice were eating uh, within 9 hours and then we asked what is the impact of this pattern of eating on 20 plus different tissues including brain regions and by doing this we realized that yes there is by time restricted feeding um we knew few things would improve for example autophagy or self repair improves mitochondria function improved and then we also saw the uh, fat burning in improved those we knew but it was reassuring to see that it was happening beyond the liver it was happening in muscle it was happening in heart uh, gut and all these other organs but what was surprising was we found that dna damage repaired or repair of protein or quality control of protein uh, protein synthesis they improved not in the fasting phase but when the mice refed and that was a surprise and uh, so those are the things that we found again in the brain we find there are certain neurotransmitters their synthesis or the reuptake improves now we got the gene expression signature now the question is is it going to improve the health of people who now we are talking about people who are depressed uh, can we improve their health by combining time restricted feeding with light exposure and we'll actually we're starting a project multi year project and support with support from the welcome trust and the lead pi is in uh, uc um, berkeley and she is trying this multi institute multi national study to see whether circadian rhythm optimization will reduce the burden of depression in treatment resistant patients so those are the things we are doing similarly sleep disruption how sleep disruption affects the immune system or how it affects the gut uh, whether it affects and how and what are the implications similarly on exercise there are two aspects that we are testing one is how exercise affects the whole body 
And we also know that nearly 40 plus percent of athletes, they eat less and exercise more. And that puts them on a negative energy balance. And many, particularly for women, it's very obvious because they miss their um, menstrual cycle. They, it has become so common that they think that being athletic, it's normal to miss your cycle, which is not true. Um, common is not normal. <laughs> common is not normal, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so, um, but it's very difficult to study athletes who are eating less. Um, first thing is they will not admit that they're eating less because um, different, our bodies are very different. We may be spending um, energy in very different rate. So for me, for example, 2000 kilocal may be my maintenance kilo calorie, but when I'm exercising, I may need 2500, whereas another person of the same body size might, might, might need 3000, who knows? So we are starting that relative energy deficit in sports, and we had to create a new mouse model where the mice have to exercise the same, but then we slowly reduce their calorie, and then we're asking, is this the right model, first thing? And then second, if it is the right model, then what happens in neuroendocrine system, brain? Again, we go take out at least 20 plus organs systematically, and then do very in-depth global analysis. We look at all the genes, or all the proteins, or all the metabolites. And then when we do that, and the regular statistical models don't work anymore, so then we have to also bring in computer scientists to build this AI machine learning uh, model to take the data and then give, give us insights. So that will be the, I think that will be the future, not only in our field, in many fields it will be the future. Well, it's so exciting, and one of the reasons I love all the work that you're doing is it it's applicable. It's, there's a lot of basic science involved, but it really is applicable to the average person and it makes the world better. So thank you so much for doing everything that you're doing. And you, if you want to tell people where to find you, you have two books. I know um, because I'm going, I have one there. I've already read one, but uh, there's a second one. So tell us a little bit about where we can find you. Yeah, so I have these two books, the Circadian Code, uh, that talks in general the circadian rhythm and its uh, implication for health. That was published almost five years ago, but it has been now translated in 15 or 17 different languages. And then uh, while working uh, with uh, patients, I also realized that uh, circadian rhythm has a huge impact on blood sugar regulation blood pressure and blood sugar regulation, those two. And that's why I wrote the second book, Circadian Diabetes Code, to control blood glucose, because uh, another thing that we realize, I realized that many people think that, oh, diabetes is just a disease of this blood sugar. If we take care of it, then it's, it's not a big deal. But actually, diabetes, as you know, is the <laughs> it takes you in a sliding yeah. slope. So that's why I wrote that book. So those two. And then um, I also started a new um, commercial version of the app, My Circadian Clock, because uh, the, this is uh, used mostly for research. And then we realized that a lot of people wanted much simpler ones. So that's why we started On Time Health. So they, uh, one can go to get On Time Health. We'll link it too. Yeah. And these are the places where uh, people can get more information. <laughs> Thank you so much. And are you active on Twitter, Instagram? I try to be active on Twitter <laughs> once in a while I do <laughs> post. Okay, well, we'll link all of those. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for doing this wonderful thing of connecting 
signs to the bigger audience who will benefit every single day. Thank you. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.